Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club Podcast, the film podcast in which two people talk about a film they both love. I don't know why nobody's thought of it before. Today I'm joined by editor, author and real-life Canadian, Shannon Fay, and we're here to discuss Edgar Wright's 2004 horror comedy classic, Shaun of the Dead. Shannon, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, very happy to be here discussing Shaun of the Dead with you. It's good to have you here. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So for anyone who might be listening who hasn't seen it, can you give us a very quick overview of the premise? So Shaun, played by Simon Pegg, he is a 27-year-old retail worker. His girlfriend, Liz, is getting a bit fed up with how they just uh, seem to spend all their date nights in the pub with their friends, specifically Sean's um, uh, slacker friend, Ed, and also Liz's roommates, Diane, and, oh no, what's it, David. David, yes. With uh, Di and David through some miscommunications and basically ineptitude on Sean's part. He uh, messes up a big date that they're a big date night that they're supposed to have causing Liz to dump him Mm, it's the make or break date night Sean he is determined to win Liz back but before he can figure out how he's going to do that the dead walk the earth a zombie apocalypse has happened and uh, London is under siege by zombies So Sean, his friend Ed, they have to go rescue Sean's mother and stepfather, as well as Liz and her roommates, find a place to buckle down, which in this case is obviously the pub, the Winchester. But when uh, zombies then converge on that location, uh, everything builds into a somewhat uh, bittersweet climax. (laughs) Yes, hopefully people have seen this and know how it, it all turns out. So do you remember when you when you first saw it and how you felt about it when you first saw it? It's tough because I don't quite remember the very first time I watched it, but I can remember the lead up to it because uh, this film came out in 2004. So I would have been 16 turning 17. And I remember seeing the hype for it both online on film sites that I frequented at the time. And also in real life at the uh, comic book store I would hang out at, right? And so eventually when my local comic book store had a DVD of it for sale, I, I grabbed it. I can't remember when I would have like sat down to watch it but I for that first time. But I know that in the years that followed, 
it was the movie where if a friend of mine said that they hadn't seen Shaun of the Dead, I'd say, oh, we have to watch it. And I'd put my DVD in, right? <laughs> so I, for a couple of years, I'm pretty sure I watched this film several times a year and would not get bored of it. it I, I was one of those annoying teens who I had decided film was going to be my thing, right? <laughs> I think I was one of those annoying teens as well, and <laughs> yeah. still am. In my case, my family when I was in uh, when I was a teen, we moved around a lot, right? So it's like, oh, can't quite get into athletics, can't quite get into some kind of like art, um, uh, but film, film will move around with you, right? Film you can watch by yourself or with your siblings, and with the internet, you could then like read other people's takes, learn about upcoming films, so. Shaun of the Dead, for me, came at a time when I was, like, uh, really, really thinking about these things. And also, it offered a glimpse of adulthood for teenage me, right? Which was uh, appealing. I mean, not to say, like, obviously there are other films featuring kind of adult slackers, like, say, Clerks, you know? Mm -hmm. But this might have been one of the first ones I'd seen. And so it was interesting to see that kind of a uh, view of adulthood. And then as I grew older, it's like, there comes a point where it's like, oh, I'm Sean's age now, right? <laughs> <laughs> and now, now that I'm older than Sean, you know, um, I was like, oh, he's, he's younger than me now. And so not to make this sound too grand a statement about a horror comedy, but there's some art where it almost feels like uh, the needle on a sundial. It stays in place, but you move in relation around it. So that makes perfect sense. Your position yeah. to it changes, right? Yeah, that totally makes sense. I know what you mean. And it is interesting seeing them get younger into the distance. As you get older, they get yeah. relatively younger to you. And say, Who are these children? <laughs> yeah. I saw it when it came out originally at the cinema, and I think I must have re fairly recently seen Spaced for the first time. Oh. I think I had seen Spaced when I watched it, because I didn't watch Spaced for a long time. Mm. I didn't watch it when it came out, and the reason was because back in those days I was still wanting comedy writing for television to be my thing, and I'd been working on a, a surreal deconstructionist flat chair Ooh. sitcom as well. Ooh, yeah. So I was just furious with jealousy yeah essentially that they'd got there first they i didn't know anything about it but i heard it was surreal and weird and kind of deconstructed the format and i was shaking my fist at the sky yeah <laughs> basil faulty style <laughs> going that's what i was trying to do yeah uh, and it turned out actually it, it's completely different that's and i loved case. it when i saw it yeah although i and again completely independently and it's maybe being a young adult in the 90s but i ha also had a character one of the main central characters in my case who <laughs> was always mashed on various pills and there was i also had the gag of him dancing to the telephone <laughs> he just danced to any rhythmic sound he'd, nice. he'd, think, he'd, he'd, oh. he'd think he's at a rave yeah so <laughs> hey that character also shows up in shot of the dead <laughs> He does, yes. Yeah. He's the, on, the only actual character to cross over between the yeah, two. Yeah. Uh, Tyres, played by Michael Smiley, or I think I, you always have to say it, Michael Smiley. I, I love that actor, but he pretty much terrifies me on sight now. <laughs> I've seen him 
in too many uh, scary roles. He's good at playing utterly terrifying characters, isn't he? If Michael Smiley's in a film, if Michael Smiley's in a film, it's probably a Ben Wheatley film. Mm. But if he's in a film that's not a Ben Wheatley film, I think he's also a good mark of quality. I think the first role outside of Spaced, outside of a light comedy that I saw him in was uh, Kill List. Oh, okay. I have not, I've heard of that, but it looks too, yeah. It's intense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, uh, he plays a sinister figure in a Black Mirror episode, and oh, that is, yeah. He's very good at both. He's very good at light comedy and very good at being intensely dark. But yes, so I I saw this film, I think, having recently seen Spaced, Mm -hmm. and being a little trepidatious. I think I'd heard good things about it. I mean, it's 18 years ago now, so I I don't remember the exact details, but I was trepidatious because at that time the idea of a British sitcom spinning off onto the big screen was still seen as probably not a good idea. And even though, unlike earlier attempts like Holiday on the Buses and all the, you know, the, the Porridge movie and all those other 70s ones, this this one's not a direct spin-off. No. It's not the same characters. Although it would be quite fun if it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seeing yeah. Tim and Daisy in a full-on actual zombie apocalypse. It's kind of a spin-off from one particular yeah. scene in one episode of Spaced. Well, they could show up with a tank, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I was trepidatious going in because of how British sitcoms usually fared on the big screen. And also, I think at that time there weren't that many great British films. It was possibly a little bit of a lull around about 2004. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I'd have to go back and well, look. Well, like, but... I guess, I mean, because, like, for me, I see it in the frame of kind of zombie resurgence, and this came out just uh, two years after 28 Days Later, which, you know, I consider a British film, right? British director, British setting, you know? And uh, I was thinking of rewatching it, that film, to kind of get ready for this, but uh, I did not. I rewatched last night in Soho instead. And anyway, but um, uh, but I remember really liking Twenty Eight Days Later, and I think it kind of weirdly paving the way for the Shaun of the Dead, right? Yes, I think so. And we'll probably get onto that because I've made notes about the the, the two different flavors of zombies mm, that you get. Yeah. But yes, I so I saw this at the cinema, and this was one of the very rare occasions. Normally, if there's a film that I'll really that I really like. I'll be enjoying it all the way through, but it'll be by the end. The film's finished and I go, I really like that film. That was a great film. Mm. In the case of Shaun of the Dead, it was by the, the moment when he's when Shaun is demonstrating, he's, he's kind of rather sort of lazily and absently demonstrating televisions to the couple <laughs> in, in his shop. Yeah. And he's flicking through the channels and you're seeing all the, the, the news reports flashing by or something, or, and no one's, no one's noticed yet. I timed it. It, t- it takes exactly 30 minutes until any of the central characters notice that there's something going on. Ah, but there's so many good scenes of dread. I like the bit with yes. the uh, homeless man in the park, or you see... Grabbing the pigeons. Yeah, or some random man running panicked in the street. And I, and I remember it was specifically that scene of him flicking through the channels and not really noticing on the TV in his, in his shop. That was the moment I thought, I love this film. No, no matter what happens now i know this film is going to be great it's doing this expert and i think it's so easy to do a horror comedy badly and Mm. i talked about this with alex in the uh, american world from london episode i think you have to be really clever and you have to take care of the atmosphere and the tone and you have to make it eerie yeah rather than just here's some jokes here's some violence yuck 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 
if you're not as clever as Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, it's it's easy to do a flat kind of lads. Hey, ladsy one, hey, zombies, hey. I also appreciate like in uh, the deleted scenes, Edgar Wright kind of breaks down some of like the overall vision like they deleted some scenes some comedic jokes where they're like no the zombies should never be like the source of the jokes they, they should never be funny in themselves because they should always be a threat right yes the comedy kind of has to come from elsewhere so i think that uh is a good kind of guiding point to help make the the horror comedy elements it's specifically the bit that they had the zombies looking like the meerkats on the neighborhood watch sign yeah so you see the neighborhood watch sign and it's that's if you don't know that it's a bit odd that the camera kind of lingers on the neighborhood watch sign but then there's a bit where the zombies are looking like the meerkats meerkats. yeah Uh, and and rightfully i think he or rightly he took that out because it, it does make the zombies look a bit silly and they they have to be proper zombies and i think there are some jokes relating to the hint of an idea that even zombified they retain some elements of their human personality they they really like they don't dwell on it but there's the joke of sean saying to his mom there's nothing of your husband left in there as then zombie bill nye turns off the music that he was uh <laughs> detested and even gives a kind of zombie sigh of relief right <laughs> yes or they talk about the zombie of the lonely woman in the pub right she really seems to hate actually hate them right <laughs> like it seems to go beyond mere like zombie hunger and it's personal Probably because she heard about these uh, two lads cracking jokes at her expense, right? Maybe every other night. Have you seen the original Dawn of the Dead, the 1978? But of course, long after I watched uh, this movie. So as a teen, I would not have gotten any of the references. But yes, yeah. Because I think that's one of the central ideas of that, that the reason there's so many zombies at the shopping mall is that there's there's some small part of them. Yeah, it's what they knew in life. Yeah. So I think they're kind of running with that idea. Personally, I mean, it, it's a taste thing, but personally for me, the two best zombie films ever is a toss-up between Dawn of the Dead and Shaun of the Dead. Oh, okay. Oh, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but in um, my Canadian DVD, it, it has to have French and English on it, right? So I'm a little sad because the French title does not retain the Dawn of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead pun, right? Oh. Because it's another language. Of course. So what's the French Jean et les zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a pun in French. Maybe it's a play on some title. You know, some like new wave film I've never heard of, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. Favorites. I mean, Shaun of the Dead pretty up there. I've always got a soft spot for Day of the Dead. I don't know. I think at the time I just wanted to be like, oh, everyone likes Dawn of the Dead, but Day of the Dead is the (laughs) underrated (laughs) Romero film. I think it's got like nearly like a nearly flawless first 15 minutes, how it goes from dream sequence to the hello, is anyone alive out there? Florida streets to the scent in the bunker. It doesn't, it's not flawless all the way through, but I think like that flow and the character dialogue where, you know, sorry for this Day of the Dead tangent, but it needs all the uh, champions it can get. (laughs) 
No, that's fair enough. The reason that Dawn of the Dead wins out for me over the Night of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead is just absence of zombie action in the first and third. There's plenty of zombiness and zombie hijinks and goings on in Dawn of the Dead to keep you satisfied, but they get marginalised quite a bit in Day of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead is more about the characters being holed up and sure. their unpleasant interactions with each other. Yeah. Oh, yes. Like, I do think it's a great movie. And now that I'm older and, you know, can can finally admit to more conventional opinions, it, it probably is the better movie, <laughs> right? An actual good movie on its own. So this is a very British film, obviously. Mm. And I think part of the reason it works so well is that it... It's taking the Britishness and running with it. So I do remember at the time seeing a review where the title of the review was "No Zombies, Please, We're British." (laughs) Excuse me. Excuse me. Hello. Oi. Oh my god. She's so drunk. <laughs> Aren't you bad, Rob? Oh, I think she likes you. I think she wants a cuddle. Listen, I'm serious, I'm just out of a relationship. <laughs> Do something! Wait there. Ed! Two seconds. Jeez, look, I'm really flattened and everything, really, but I just. And hold it there. And it does, one of the notes I made was that it actually feels more like John Wyndham than George Romero. So I think think George Romero zombies, he's from Philadelphia and they're set and filmed in Philadelphia. Hey, Romero's also also a Canadian citizenship. We claim him as our own. He was only (laughs) able to make those like later in life movies because of some, because I'm pretty sure because of government funding. So actually, I I think they... I think Dawn of the Dead does has a, have a slight Canadian bleakness. There's something almost... I was watching Scanners the day before yesterday, and that almost has a similar feel to mm, kind Dawn of, of the Dead. Something about the picture eh? quality. Yeah. The chilliness yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily associate with American films. Mm, yeah. So I think there is, a, there is a Canadian feel to it, now you mention it. And I think a Shaun of the Dead doesn't feel at all like a George Romero film. No. And it's much more like John Wyndham. It's much more like Day of the Triffids. Mm. And it was actually seeing Day of the Triffids, the 1981 BBC adaptation at the time when I was six or seven and far too young to be watching such things and finding it really eerie (laughs) and scary. Mm. That I think that is the reason that I connect to the slow-moving zombies. I think the fast-moving zombies are fine and they're scary. Yes. I mean, they make you panic. It's very claustrophobic having these things chasing you. Yeah, it gets your adrenaline pumping for sure. But there's something about ostensibly being able to go outside and wander around and just being careful and not getting cornered and cut off. Uh, Like the way that that Sean is obliviously and safely able to walk to and from the uh, corner shop. Yeah, the um, uh, calmness almost, the obliviousness almost being a shield. I think it more goes for that eeriness in the way that the um, John Wyndham cosy apocalypse thing does. It has that quiet eeriness to it. 
I could see, like, um, uh, that coziness a bit in uh, Night of the Living Dead, where the zombies have, like, the caked-upon makeup, the black yes. and white having an almost calming effect, I feel, on it, right? And also with it being actually a pretty slow-paced film, you know? It is, yeah. I think it has quite aggressive characters in it, particularly the the dad. is It does come across as a very 1960s yeah. buzz cut Republican type, uh, and then Dawn of the Dead has got you know, the two of the main characters work in the newsroom, and two of them are SWAT team members. Yeah. Whereas Shaun of the Dead, all of the characters are fairly schlubby. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of teachers, a bloke who works at electro electric shop. So obviously, for me, it has an extra resonance because it's in an environment that I know, and it's 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 very very English, and I've been to Crouch End. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know that environment fairly well, and and you do now too because you've lived in London. But at the time, I don't know. Maybe this maybe this film made me a Britophile. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe like maybe we wouldn't have met, right? Maybe I never would have come to England if no Shaun of the Dead. Who knows? <laughs> but watching it at the time as a Canadian, how did the, the how did the Britishness strike you? Yeah, interesting. I mean, there's lots of little mannerisms. I feel like Sean and his mum, they're like loving, but somewhat, they're somewhat, I don't, I'm trying to think of, not quite constrained, but emotionally bottled up. That's the word. There we go. Yeah. They're somewhat repressed way of dealing with each other, right? You know? And even, like, I really like the moment with his stepdad as uh, he's dying. I think, like, uh, I really like the bit where he said that he just, he wanted to be a father figure to Sean. You know, he thought that that's what Sean needed, but he, you know, like, they they just could never get to that point, right? And it's like, wow, maybe if you had this, if you had had this talk when Sean was 12, right? <laughs> Things could have been different, right? But no. I think it is very much about the, that British repressed, mm. emotional, not really being able to connect to your girlfriend properly, not being able to connect to your mum properly. And also maybe the idea of um, a kind of like avoiding conflict, which gets harder and harder the dire things get. Yes, it's that moment where... Pete, played by Peter Serafinowicz, pers- persuades Sean to boot um, Ed out of the house and Ed's playing his computer game and Sean is leaning over his shoulder and very tactfully trying his best, <laughs> being very conflict-averse. Yeah, the one thing that one thing that does change as I get older is I do feel like, as a teen, being like, Ed's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and as I get older, being like, he has less and less redeeming qualities, right? <laughs> Who's Sean? No, Ed. Yes, he's really unpleasant, he, isn't he? Unpleasant, <laughs> like literally dangerous with his callousness, right? You know. Yes. So. Sometimes he's nice, but sometimes he's he's quite aggressive and he's quite well, like just like it's comedic him taking a phone call while they're surrounded by zombies, right? Yes. Him playing the um, uh, slot machine or whatever that bar game is when they're surrounded by zombies. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's one of those things, the older you get, the more you identify with and agree with Pete. (laughs) It's sad, but yeah. Yeah. So when you're you're about that age or younger, I I, I was probably about that age when I saw it. And I would have been younger. I'm, I'm younger than, than Simon. Yeah, it's like, oh, Pete, he's so grumpy, so uptight. Yeah. 
but watching it now it's like it would be awful to live with no kidding like your roommates are blasting music on a work night right (laughs) like (laughs) he doesn't jot down the answer phone messages and all these awful things that he does and he did and he seems like a a thoroughly unpleasant bloke yeah yeah, so. he's probably got a heart of gold, but his behaviour is really. I mean, not actions not very good. are where it's at, right? <laughs> he he totals a car just so he can drive a nicer car. When logistically, that is uh, seems like quite a mistake. Yes, he's incredibly selfish. He's a drug dealer. He's he's dealing drugs to uh, uh, to teens. No. <laughs> Yes, to, to uh, Noel, who yeah. works, who's oh. Simon's colleague, who's uh, uh, Sean's colleague. And also, this is, I've watched this film maybe a hundred times, and it was only on my most recent rewatch that I learned that Noel is played by Rafe Spall. Rafe Spall, yes. Yeah. Oh, did you not notice before? No, because he looks so different now. <laughs> he does, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, you can still something, learn something new about your favourite film. <laughs> This is the first time, having watched it many, many times, that I notice that you see Mary, who's the zombie who turns up in the garden, you see her leaving for work. Yeah. So she lives just close to the uh, shop. Right. And on the first pass of, of Sean walking to the shop, you see her. Very fraction of a second, you see her coming out of her front door. Okay, all right. Interesting. Yeah, I don't so know. So she crops up a few times throughout. And a few of these people crop up a few times. The, the zombies you see later, most of them... A lot of the early ones turn up as, as living people right, quite, right. right at the start. Yeah, I know the recursion is fantastic. It's a lot of fun seeing the repeated instances. Yes, this is one thing that I wrote down that it's... I mean, for a start, Edgar in particular, he's a master of detail. It's like every moment he has thought about, there's not a wasted inch. Yes. So there's a bit early on in the pub when everyone is there. It's that very first scene in the pub. Everyone there is there and it's getting a bit stressed. Everyone's saying... Sean, Ed, and things like that. But in the background, the sounds of the pub and the pool table just rise up. Everything, he's thought about everything really carefully. Sean, what I'm trying to say is, I need something a little more. More than spending every night in the Winchester. I want to get out there and do more interesting stuff. I want to live a little. And I want you to want to want to do it too. Oh, listen to me. You're going to sound like your mum. Not that I know what she sounds like. You still haven't met his mum. Not yet. Get along with your mum, Sean. No, it's not that I don't get on with her. Are you ashamed by your mum, Sean? No, I love my mum. Yeah, I love his mum. Ed. She's like butter. Ed. Sean, Sean. guys. Sean. Liz. Look, I understand what you're trying to say, okay? And I agree. You should get out there. We'll start tomorrow. I love uh, Ed's bit to Sean where he's outlining their day, you know. We'll have a bite at the king's head, a couple yes. at Bloody Mary, and it's outlining how, and come back here, and uh, it's outlining the rest of the movie, right? Yes, it prefigures the movie, doesn't it? Now what we should do tomorrow, keep drinking. We'll have a Bloody Mary first thing, have a bite at the king's head, a couple at the little princess, we'll stagger back here. Bang! Back at the bar for shots. how's that for a slice of fried gold? So the whole thing feels really tightly choreographed. You get... you. You get all these setups and payoffs, even just lines of dialogue that mean one thing at the start of the film, yeah. then mean something else at the other film. So there's, it's like the entire first half of the film is then repeated in the second half of the film yeah. with a subtly different meaning. That the climax is a fart joke, right? <laughs> that still manages <laughs> to be sad. It's amazing. <laughs> and also, this is the first time I've really noticed the fact that there's the bit early on where Ed 
calls them zombies and Sean says don't say that don't say zombies and and I think that's a reference to to Dawn of the Dead because they never refer to the word they never use the word zombie in Dawn of the Dead yeah yeah but later on when he refers I think it it's David who refers to Sean's mum becoming a zombie Sean says don't say that it's a couple of times he says don't say that yeah and it's it's the exact same dialogue mirrored but meaning something different. So it's like the whole film takes place in like a series of different sized loops. You're waiting for the that thing to pay off and recur yeah, like you say, it's recursion, isn't it? That it's it's all it's all happening in different places and it's it's not an exact it's not concentric circles, it's it's all these different sized loops and things recurring. Which is one of the reasons I think it's so watchable. It's not just a fun film about a zombie apocalypse in a central London location with likeable characters mostly. It's actually intensely detailed and extremely clever. Yeah, no, that's why I feel like I could watch it several times a year where, yeah, you pick up new things. Yeah, it's always, always thing new to spot. Yeah, and it's shot in like a visually interesting way, right? It looks really good, so yeah. So yeah, going back to the, the idea of it, being British but you being Canadian mm. I think sort of it's, it's kind of more the location and the tone of it because one something that and I might have talked about this in the American Wealth in London episode it's something that I had this revelation a few years back whilst watching Planes, Trains and Automobiles oh. American 80s cinema Hollywood cinema is particularly evocative so you've got E.T. and you've got uh, Poltergeist mm. and all those films and including the John Hughes comedies yeah. are very evocative for a, for a British person but then it because I used to live in Chicago I lived in Chicago for three months. Towards the end of planes, trains and automobiles, he's standing on one of the train, the L train stations that I knew. Yeah. And it suddenly occurred to me, this isn't this 1980s dream Hollywood world. For Americans watching this, this is these stories happening in their own environment. So E.T. isn't this magical suburb that only exists in E.T. and Poltergeist. This is real life to these. So, so for then non-British people in the other direction watching Shaun of the Dead it, it must be it must be a similar sort of experience let me tell you though when I came to live in North London me and my mate were not able to say rent a house <laughs> <laughs> even if we had a third person so uh, yeah I don't know if that just uh, shows how different the London real estate market is between 2004 <laughs> and 2015 when I came over, right? <laughs> but in terms of like the, the feel of the environment, it's a zombie apocalypse in a world that I know, but I think t- to people who don't live in London or didn't live in London at the time that they saw it, it, it would have a whole... Which I think is also a reason that in the US and possibly Canada that... Downton Abbey is quite a nerdy thing. Yes, yeah. Whereas in this country, it's something that grannies watch. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit, tr- it's quite trendy. Yeah, that's really weird. I also appreciate with the uh, Shaun of the Dead, it being set in a very localized version of London. There's no shots of uh, Big Ben <laughs> or the Thames, right? That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but it's not, it's not tourist London. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, like, I love 28 Days Later and even if they weren't looking towards like an international market, I think you have to have those shots of like empty Piccadilly Circus and Trafalgar Square. But I like that, you know, it shows a more like day-to-day life of London. Well, when there's a zombie apocalypse. Ah, I remember your your talk there about its Britishness 
reminded me of something. I remember when the film was coming out, you probably remember this too, the UK promotional for it was like uh, Sean with his flowers on a crowded subway train car, zombies packing the, yes. the train car. But for the North American, they went for a more, you know, like bland, like the movie poster zombies clawing at the movie poster. Oh, right. Because the idea being like, oh, a lot of cities don't have subways or, you know, not enough of the viewing audience would kind of get the joke or, you know, or be able to be like, oh, yes, that's what it's like. Rush hour on the London tube. (laughs) (laughs) That that British version of the poster with the the, the pressed against the glass of the tube mm-hmm. is a reference to something. Now you mention it, and I can't remember what it, it's something quite obscure. It's something like an an electric light orchestra album cover, but at the back of an album cover. Wow! Okay. Or Argent or some some. I'm sure it's some seventies band. Interesting. And the back of the back of the album has that image. The album in question is the rear cover of Face the Music by Electric Light Orchestra. We'll come to the next question. Do you have a favorite scene? Oh boy, you know, I was mulling this over and it's tough because I just I just love the whole movie, right? And I do think the movie flows so well into from one scene to the next. That's very tough for me to pick a favourite. There's definitely jokes I like. Yes, do you have a favourite joke? Yeah, well, like, I was thinking about it, I think there's two. Uh, one, love, pow, super mum, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the deadpan delivery, right? <laughs> and I also really like the sight gig of... Are there any zombies out there as um, uh, Sean is peering out the mailbox slot of the door? And he's like, nope. And then he look, and then the camera pans just a little bit. And it's like, oh, no, there they are. They're all just clustered <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> outside the frame, right? <laughs> I think also this is so rewatchable that you, you will laugh at different jokes yeah. on different viewings because you remember the ones you laughed at last time and then other ones will bob up to the surface. So the one I laughed at, which is quite a subtle one, is they've they've encountered the two zombies in the garden and then the guy the the groom going to the wedding. Yeah. He's got an arm off. Yeah. And then they they sit down to look at the TV and the TV news is talking about some apocalypse and Ed says, Do you think this is the same thing? <laughs> yeah, relatable. Hey, who yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And speaking of relatable, I think also what what grounds this so well is moments like where they're they're about to strike out, they're about to get in the car, go and rescue all the people who need rescuing, and Sean says, I've got to do a wee first. Which you never get in films. My favourite scene, I think, is the long interrupted the second long uninterrupted steady cam shot of Sean walking from his house to the corner shop and back. Yes. Lots of good callbacks there. Yeah. Yes. Because there's the first one when it's just a normal day and he passes all the people, has the interaction, interactions interactions with them. Then on the second pass, everything's changed. And again, it's very cleverly done, like the guy washing his car windscreen with foam. On the way past the second time, the windscreen is broken and shattered and it's become white yeah. in the same way. So it looks very similar to the way it did when it was covered in foam. So it's it's very intensely well done and very, very clever. Yeah. And the repeated motions and all the, the callbacks immediately afterwards. But it also, because of the music as well, watching it this time, it occurred to me how eerie that scene is. Because 
none of it's really played for laughs. I mean, the only laughs you really get from it is recognising how things have changed on the repeat. They're changed, but they're the same. Even the jokes, even the laughs, you know, like have uh, Sinister Edge, Sean not seeing the bloody handprints, you know, as he opens the door. Yes, he's too hungover, doesn't he? as the young man begging for change. He's dragging now an empty leash, <laughs> implying that he ate his dog, right? So I think that's the that's the the key scene that really sets up the tone of the rest of the film. It's the it's the end of Act One. It's not just going to be yay zombies, lads, yay yeah. kind of film. It's yeah. it's very subtle. It's very eerie, uh, and it's very clever as well. I guess I do like the montage of them running through their options, right? Yes. And I like, I especially like how truncated the kill Phil bit becomes. Right? <laughs> yes, kill Phil. At but... first, it's like, I'm so sorry, Philip, right? <laughs> and then just sorry as a passion, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think possibly also I, I have to give a special shout out to the Don't Stop Me Now scene, mm. the Queen scene. It's a genuinely exhilarating scene. It's one of the best uses of needle drop music in film, I think. Yeah. It's, one, it's got to be up there. Yeah, no, you can't help but kind of bounce along to it too, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I think possibly it maybe ranks slightly lower because it then meant that every advert and every magazine program had to use Don't Stop Me Now. You, you couldn't go a day without hearing Don't Stop Me Now for about 10 years afterwards. It's tough, like, you know, to blame something for something's revival, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, I love the song. It's a, it's a great song, and I think it did help Queen have yet another revival and become more recognised. Yeah, and it's not, you know, it's don't stop me now. It's still a hit, right? But I don't know. Maybe this is again a North America thing. But I don't know if it was on the Best of Queen tape that I would have listened to as a kid, right? I had never heard it before. Sean oh, of the okay, Dead. Okay, yeah. I, so maybe I would have a known bit of a most cut, Queen huh? hits. So I think it was it was a later song. It was from I think it's from jazz. So it's not from that kind of classic sheer heart attack, the um, Night at the Opera and Dawn of the Dead. What's the other one? Night of the Day of the Triffids albums day of the races that's the one so it, yeah i think people generally hadn't heard it so much as some of the more familiar so ones like Killer Queen i and, kind of yeah but no you couldn't you couldn't escape it for several years afterwards but it's yes it's it's a genuinely exhilarating scene yeah I, and i'm still thinking like oh what is my favorite scene i don't know it's tearing me apart i can't <laughs> pick one <laughs> one thing that hadn't really occurred to me before you mentioned it earlier about about the marketing and having to account for North American, the North American market, British comedies after Four Weddings and a Funeral would have to make some kind of nod to the North American market, which this film doesn't. So they would have 
They would usually have a glamorous American actress. I know there is a small allowance they made for American viewers. Very small. Mary, the zombie in the garden, you know, she turns around, she's got that glassy expression on her face. Ed and Sean look at her in horror and then laugh and say, Oh my God, she's drunk. She's so drunk. Yes, of course. And in in the in a commentary, Edgar writes like the line was originally, "Oh, she's pissed, right?" But that is a different context <laughs> yeah, in North America. Of we course. Don't, you know, everybody'd be like, "She's mad." No, she doesn't look <laughs> angry, right? <laughs> so there was some thought, a little, little thought, but right? It's, it's a resolutely British film. I have no problem having American characters in it in things for the sake of. Appealing token to Americans, American, yeah, yeah or, or even getting some American distribution or American money. I have no problem at all with that, but it's nice that there are some films that just resolutely don't do it. And this is an, an entirely British film. Uh, do you have a favorite moment? I was uh, kind of wanted to save this for give her a better shout out, but I do like when they are having the Mexican standoff in the bar and it devolves into them kind of hashing out who likes whom and David not getting over kind of his crush on Liz. Again, very British, very impressed. Yes. And Diane saying it straight out that she knows David liked Liz and that they only hooked up because Liz rejected him, but that she's okay with that. But David then not addressing Di but addressing Liz and you get a shot of Diane looking devastated. You know, a nice little moment that would have been easy to kind of skip over. And that actually reminds me, there's a good example of Simon and Edgar's insane attention to detail. And I, again, I only noticed on this viewing is that they all call Liz something different. Diane calls her Elizabeth David calls her Lizzie and Sean calls her Liz. Mm, interesting. And it's got to be one of those things that's deliberate and it's just another little touch. It's just that they have to have every moment of the film has some meaning, detail. Some deeper, yeah, significant. something. I think my favourite moment in the film, I mean, there's two parallel ones that are very close together. It's the very, very start, just as the logos fade up. Well, the first one is you see the Universal Studios logo, and it's not the Universal Music, it's the Snatch of Goblin. I think it's a, a Goblin track called Zombie. Correction, it's actually a track called Figment by Simon Park, the eye-level guy. <laughs> You hear kind of the wobbly, wobbly synthesizer come up just as the Universal logo. And then a couple of seconds later after that, it happens again when the working title logo comes up and you get the swirly, sireny sound, the background sound at the very beginning of uh, Ghost Town by the Specials. So it's just those two lovely moments that really... Oh, right, I'm settling in. The film's starting, and right from the very start, you get just a great bit of sound design and music choice that really gets you straight into the film. It is nice when, like, uh, the film creators are able to uh, subvert the opening with purpose, right? And I think it's a testament to the film that... Ghost Town by the Specials, I'm, I now only associate with this film. This is a, a song I rem, I rem, I'm old enough to remember Ghost Town when it came out. It's a very popular song. It was a big hit at the time. It got memorably used in Father Ted, so there's every chance that it would be associated with that. But no, it's been, claim, it's been claimed, at least in my brain, by Shaun of the Dead. 
Yeah, for me, it's definitely the touchstone. Yeah. Uh, another line I liked, Ed says about Mary in the garden, what's up with her eyes? And it's not a funny line, it's just... There's a few lines that take the situation absolutely seriously, even though they're comedic characters. Ed, just get her off me! Jeez! What's up with her eyes? What's up with her eyes? There's a scene that I wanted to get your vibe on because we're watching it so after um mary's in the garden i think by this point the big guy has also shown up and sean is trying to call 911 and ed is telling him you know ask for you know ask if a ambulance a fire truck anything with the flashing red lights and it's the only scene in the movie where ed is seemingly worried and i'm like and i don't know it feels a little out of character Oh. You know, for such a well-conceived, constructed film, for him to, at this point, not just, like, be light him if you got him, kind of, his usual <laughs> self. Yeah, I don't know, I think he seems fairly alarmed early on. Okay. Like, when, like over the initial surprise, maybe, but, like, con- but, like then consistent scaredness afterwards he's quite blasé isn't yeah he? yeah so even then he's not really in a panic he's still concerned though and for me that feels like an out of character scene slash moment yeah okay yeah. Well, that's interesting this is going to be my theory i have nothing to base this on right but i'm going to chalk this up to maybe they shot that scene early you know Maybe it's a danger of a, you know, like, you only need the two actors. You, you don't shoot films chronologically. I'm just going to make a theory. Maybe they <laughs> shot that. And then after that, decided, no, Ed's never kind of going to be outright scared, you know? I would not noticed that about Ed, but you, I think you're right. He, he's, he's usually fairly blasé, isn't he? Blasé to the point of disinterested. And I think one of my favourite elements is the fact that he has a, cr- <laughs> he has a crush on Sean's mum. <laughs> I do like like his rare good moments are seemingly his like uh, genuine distress over Barbara, you know, being bitten. Uh, and speaking of Sean's mum, it's been a running joke in my family ever since the sitcom Ever Decreasing Circles that Penelope Wilton looks like my mum. I've met your mum. Yeah, she does. <laughs> D- down to the fact that, that in both Ever Decreasing Circles and Shaun of the Dead, my mum's contemporary hairstyle was exactly the same as Penelope <laughs> Wilton's. <laughs> but also, Penelope Wilton's character in this is quite similar to my mum. I, I didn't want to be a bother. Yes. They were quite bitey. Very sweet, good hostess, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's done very well. I think often people don't know what to do with the mum character. Even yes. something... Even something like The Simpsons with Marge, who's a long-running character who they've been <laughs> apparently writing for for decades, they're still never quite sure what to do with her. Hey, and like when I feel like when there's in the heyday when there were good Marge episodes, some of the funniest stuff, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I like her her flashes of impatience with Sean. You know, the well, you did call him a you know what. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a rounded character. None of the characters are outright flat ciphers. They, they all have depth and sides to them. One thing I was going to mention, actually, I think possibly for newer audiences or younger people, watching something like Shaun of the Dead or Spaced perhaps wouldn't be able to really appreciate how new and different it was to fill mm. your film, your TV show with references to other things because it's so overplayed now. Yeah, yeah. And having having a Star Wars reference in your thing is just every other 
every second person does it. It felt tired even in the alien movie that Simon Pegg and Nick Frost did. Yeah, you know, and when they were one of the earlier people's doing it, <laughs> you can't keep doing it. You've got um not American Dad, what's it called? You've got um Seth MacFarlane Family Guy. See, so you've you've got an entire Family Guy that you can buy on DVD that's just doing the story of Star Wars. And you've got Robot Chicken on Adult Swim doing Star Wars jokes. So it's quite a thing now that I think my generation, Gen X, spent a while not really talking about these things. Talking about Star Wars and all the nerdy things we grew up... You wouldn't think it now, because you can't shut us up about it. I was going to say... The fact that I've got two podcasts. (laughs) I think until around that time, until around about Spaced... It wasn't really mentioned, and we were going more on the the previous generation's model of being a bit hand wavy about these things. Any now, if you get a, a stand up comedian who mentions Star Wars, uh, they'll they'll know all the names of the characters. They'll know who Chewbacca is and what his personality is, that kind of thing. But if you go back to Spaceballs, the um, Mel Brooks film, that's very hand wavy. Like he's he's not he's not going to sully himself by actually doing specific Star Wars jokes. He's he's keeping it well at a distance. So I think spaced in its way was was a license for us to go. Oh, we can talk. We can make jokes about this. We can yeah. We can have fun with our love of Star Wars and our, our, the things we grew up with as children. And and our yeah, we can make podcasts about old TV <laughs> to our heart's content. So I think that, that sort of was almost part of the thing that gave us permission. It's it's. Now try shutting us up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that is the shift in pop culture of the idea of, like, the nerds have won. And on one hand, that's great. I'm glad to have, you know, a bit more of a common language. But I'm also, you know, like, well, this leads to just, like, every movie in theaters being a Marvel movie, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's true, yes. Like, this, you know, every, oof, you know, like, multiple... Star Wars TV shows that I'm not watching, right? You know, <laughs> and and like no shade on people who enjoy them. I'm, you know, like that's great. It's just oh, now that it is the norm, it doesn't. Uh, aside, like I wouldn't even say like it doesn't feel so special. It just doesn't feel so good. But I think also, like, once something is starting to be produced in quite greater quantities you're going to maybe start seeing a decrease in quality just based on you, you're going to miss a lot of shots. It's definitely now that Star Wars has gone from being this thing that we had three of and we we dreamed of the day that there might be more and then, then got a rude awakening in the late 90s when there was and it, it didn't come close to <laughs> living yeah. up to our, our dreams and hopes for the future. But yes, I, I know like with Space, I guess there's like, a, I don't know, commentary tracks pointing out all the references and I'd love, I'd, I'd like to watch those sometime and even... Like, uh, there's, like, a Pulp Fiction reference, right? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference very early on in the first episode. I I feel like they really were throwing a lot at the wall. There's an episode that ends, the paintball episode, I think, ends with a Terminator reference for kind of no reason. It's just just the end joke, you know? (laughs) And I think now we might eye roll if people do that kind of thing. But, yeah, back then it it was... a brand new thing. They're doing a Star Wars reference and not just saying, you know, uh, Star Wars. Because Friends did the whole, Friends did the Star Wars thing of 
of having um, a sexual fantasy of Leia. Yeah, dressing, yeah, yeah. Dress, have Jennifer Aniston's dressing up as Princess Leia. But this had a really deep cut reference of the line reading. Even was similar to the way that the actor did yeah. it in Star Wars. So it was it was a lot more of a specific reference. Also, famously, this film was pitched as a Zom rom com. Ah, yes, uh, this is on my note to talk about. Really? Okay. I wonder if your your take on it will be different or the same. Yeah. As mine. Well, I wanted to ask because just now looking at the posters, if it was marketed as a rom com with songs in the UK, or whether just the strength of the initial premise was enough to carry it. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a later thing that they thought of and thought, oh, that's that's a fun gag. We'll call it a rom com com. The only reason I say that is because it's not really. A rom-com? I was going to say that, like, as far as the romantic element, don't get, I, I think the actress for Liz is great, and I think she and Sean have chemistry, but it feels more of a buddy chemistry. Well, I think also the, the story of him trying to win Liz back is just part of the human drama. I think it doesn't yeah. have the rom-com trope. So I think, you, I think there's two types of rom-com. The first type is where it's two people meet each other for the first time and they hate each other. The meet cute. The meet cute where they, it's usually they hate each other or they like each other, but there's some major adversity going on that they have to overcome. Yeah. The second one, which this one ostensibly is, is that it's a character, two characters who split up and the it's usually one wants to win the other one back. It's usually for older, like rom-coms for slightly older people. It's usually like an ex, you know, the, the, the ex-wife or the ex-husband. But... The trope in a rom-com, which I think makes it a rom-com, is that there has to be an antagonist. She has to have... She's got a new fiancé, he's a lot more man. successful, but he's not very nice. Uh, and there, there's no there's no actual antagonist in this, in terms of that. It, it, the only antagonist is either, you could say it's Liz herself, who's just refusing to take Sean back, or it's Sean himself, because he's such a loser that she wouldn't want to take him back. So I think even like even David. I mean, who, like there's yeah, I was gonna say David, but he's not a serious antagonist because she doesn't like him. <laughs> so she'd she'd never go out with him anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's just a comedy drama that involves um, it involves getting on with your stepdad and your relationship with your mum. It involves your you know, relationship with a girlfriend and breaking up with her and trying to win her back. So I think it's I think it's not a rom com. I think it's it's no. a rom com. Well, like there's uh, hardly any element of romance. They do not even smooch, right? <laughs> no, they don't actually do that. They no... do not smooch. You know, like what? Yeah. So I don't know what that's all about. You know, <laughs> they do actually. Yeah, when you see them at the end, they are essentially just flatmates. Yeah, like and they're they are and like I like the little bit where where Sean has the the line like, "Well, you don't want to die single, do you?" Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Like, that's, that's, you know, I'm uh, sweet and cute. But if you thought you were about to die, maybe you'd give your on-again, off-again <laughs> partner a little smooch, right? Yeah. You know? I know Ed's there, but yeah. I actually think this kind of um, carries forth into Hot Fuzz, where initially they had been writing the script with a female love interest as a character, but it just kind of cluttering up the script, and they ended up cutting that character and giving her lines to Nick Frost's character, right? <laughs> I must admit, and this is no disrespect for Egg, to Edgar Wright or Simon Frost, Simon Pegg, <laughs> whichever, whatever they're called. Keep that in. Keep that in. <laughs> I think actually one of. I'll, I'll start again. <laughs> this is this is meant as no disrespect at all to, to Edgar Wright, but I think possibly his weakness is love interests. Baby Driver, she's entire, and it's a very you know well known actress. 
I forget who it is. I haven't seen it for a while. Yeah. But it's someone who's gone on to do a lot of films. But that character is almost entirely forgettable. And she's almost entirely redundant and doesn't really yeah. have much no, to do. Yeah, no, I think do. the actress does a good job. But, like, the, I feel like uh, the details we get of her backstory are kind of there to explain why she could go on the run with Baby Driver, right? Yes, and I think possibly she's in there because it's an American film and you don't have necessarily the artistic freedom to say, no, I'm not having a a romantic interest in there. So I, I think for all his I many, like, many strengths... I mean, like, in Baby Driver, I think having a love interest makes sense because it kind of being like a a crime drama and, like, aside from his own personal reservations some motivation to get out of that criminal life starting over with someone would be a good reason and i rewatched last night in soho because i don't know if with love interests if you're specifically mean female love interests but the love interest in last night in soho again the actor does a great job but the details we get there are things where the main character ellie is like you must think I'm crazy, don't you? Right? And him being oh, like... Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a little bit cursory as well, isn't he, he? And he's like, no, my auntie believes some weird shit, so I totally <laughs> buy it. And it's like, you know, like anything we get from him is usually in response to, you know, why would he be going along with this? It's it's nice that it's a male character this time rather than a female yeah, character. Yeah, so it does show it. that it's like kind of equal opportunity. <laughs> yes, it's not, it's not that... Edgar can't do female characters. It's just his his strength isn't love interests. I was relieved though with Last Night in Soho um, when I first saw the trailer. I was like, "Ooh, interesting! A female um, female main character from Edgar Wright." But I do know that there was also a a woman who wrote the script with him. So I think that's you know it's like it's it's smart if there's something that you know a perspective you lack. <laughs> to bring someone else in, right? <laughs> but I think the, the female characters in this are very good. I think all three yeah, of the I do, central I do. female characters are, are not... Um, yeah. They're not weak, and I think it is just having to have the love interest. Yeah. Cameos. We got some good cameos in this. There's a whole... They, they get all the... Most of the cameos, they just get out in a few seconds. They put them all <laughs> in a long line. Martin Freeman, Reese Shearsmith, Tamsin Gregg, Julia Deakin from Spaced, Matt Lucas just file past a camera, which is quite nice, quite neat. Jessica Stevenson. I guess she goes by Jessica Hines now. Yes. Is she a, is she a cameo or is she like a minor uh, character? She's got spoken lines, but I mean, you know, two scenes, three, I guess. Yeah. She, she turns three times i'd say she's a she's a minor character i think they'd wanted her to be in it and possibly they they'd maybe written liz for her but she was unavailable okay she also would have been a good die but i i mean i love lucy davis's die yes her very vague way of talking and often like i can't quite tell what she's saying (laughs) she sort of throws away the lines but it really works the scene when they're walking through the zombies is as scary as anything in any horror film, I think. Yeah, though that scene kind of bothers me because... Oh, really? Well, I one thing I appreciate is um, some sense of how zombies operate. You got zombies that are based solely on sound. You got some that are based on smell. So without a clear sense of how these zombies sense their prey, I'm a little like, oh, you know, how do the characters know this is going to work? Like, it's a pretty big risk to take based on what? Nothing, you know? <laughs> so I, it feels like kind of a bad move from characters who have been relatively cautious, if not all that smart. I get like they need some way to get to the to the Winchester, but 
it kind of uh, takes me out of the film a little bit because I don't feel like uh, they are following their own logic. I suppose it's there's a bit of cinematic shorthand going on. Yeah. Of just sort of having to make the assumption or or uh, guessing it's going to work, hoping it's going to work. Yeah. I like the gag of one of the characters saying, we're not going to get anywhere by moaning. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a ding light bulb moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a nice show. But the actual scene itself, regardless of the logic of it, when they're actually walking through the zombies, and that is good, eerie filmmaking. I love Barbara's high pitched. Yeah. <laughs> like, just like moaning. tight lipped. Ooh. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I do like, there's a little bit of like, uh, you see David briefly kind of hurting Di and Liz in a way that's like, oh, you know, he does care for them on some level, right? <laughs> Trying to shield them from zombies. So. I think actually the only bit that doesn't really work for me is at the end of that when they're hold up against the side of the pub and the zombies are just waiting for them to do the things they need to do and they don't yeah. they've, they've got quite a long time to do anything they need to do before the zombies attack yeah. them. they should have been dead within seconds of arriving at the pub but that's it's it's a it's a comedy film yeah i do like the logic of sean just being loud enough to distract all the zombies is there a, a bit or an element that you could do without in the film mm. well i talked about how wanting the you know, romance maybe to be amped up a little bit. <sighs> yeah, I, um, uh, I don't know if I have too much to go over that haven't already brought, been brought up. Yeah, how about you? I mean, there's a couple of things you probably wouldn't these days have Nick Frost using a, a certain racial epithet. Oh my gosh, good point. Yeah, yeah. The thing I could really do without every time I watch it <laughs> is Sean getting a dart in his head. You know, yes, I, I really, love that. I, love I mean, it. I, it's it always, funny, but I really... It always makes me cringe. I, I, I especially like just the... Again, who are the real enemies? Who's the real danger? In the <laughs> head, in error. the head. <laughs> yeah. And I love the practical effect of it. Like the scene where he pulls it out. You know, he pulls out the, like, it's the trick dart with the bl- blood spurting out. His hand goes out of frame. Uh, a special effects person hands him a real dart, <laughs> which he then holds up and shakes in the frame. Just a nice little practical, uh, you know, effect. At least, yeah, I guess for the actual, like, throwing part, it's just a, an editing thing, right? You get the shot of the dart being thrown. He ducks his head. He comes back screaming, you know? Yes, I think a lot of the projectiles are cg as well a lot of the the records that they throw at the zombies towards the start are are cg records okay i know like the household items just made of like foam and rubber but i didn't know that about the records i wouldn't take it out of the film but it's a bit (laughs) it's a bit that i personally could do without seeing every time i watch the film because that does make it's a lot of horror films i can put up with the horror because it's so cartoonish and so full-on yeah in john carpenter's the thing i can cope with the entire film apart from the bit where they're using a scalpel to cut their thumbs to get blood samples. Wow. I, I can't wow. watch that. I can watch things bursting out of chests. I can watch heads coming off and crawling away. Yeah. But I can't watch... Yeah, but anything slightly anything, real, huh? Anything real. Anything you can imagine, I think. Yeah. You, you can, anything you can empathise with. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that final third in the pub, that's as exciting and frightening as anything you'll see in a, any other horror film, I think. that's It's a good... It's, it's very yeah. much like... Assault on Precinct Thirteen, the original John Carpenter one. If you've seen, have you seen Assault on Precinct Thirteen? I have not. It's very like that. Okay. Very similar feel. 
It's for, I, I recommend it highly. The music okay. even, I mean... I, I love Carpenter's synth. Yeah, I think the music is very, in this, is very redolent of it. So there's, there's no reason to suspect it's not at least a semi-deliberate variation on Assault on Precinct 13. No, I think I think definitely think, often see people discussing whether Shaun of the Dead, if it's more of a straight-up comedy than a horror. But I think it's very true to the zombie genre by having that... Um, shades of nihilism in that final that final act, right? Yeah, and I really appreciate a film that can do a proper climactic last stand where it feels really apocalyptic and the characters start getting killed off one by one and it starts seeming really desperate. Even when they are momentarily saved by seemingly random chance, the shells heating up from the fire. Yes. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel cheap because, again, things have been set up and it only buys them a momentary reprieve. So, yes, exactly. And with the final act, it gives a way for Ed to redeem himself in a way that still fits his slacker (laughs) character, right? Yeah. He's doing it because on some level he does care about Sean, but he also just, you know, can't be bothered. He's been bit. (laughs) Rather just stay sitting where he is. One of my favourite gags is the bit, because it's quite a sensitive and emotional moment where Liz and Sean are talking about how there's only two bullets left and they might need to use the bullet on themselves. And the bit where Sean mimes having to do it, (laughs) including the brains... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but very, ser- he's very seriously just has very seriously going through each of the actions. How many shells have we got left? Um, two. I suppose we could, you know, take a few of them out if they stand in a line. I wasn't thinking about them. I know. What about Ed? There's only two shells. I don't mind being eaten. How are we going to do this? Uh, I don't know. Um, one of us has to go first. Well, maybe one should do the other and then do themselves. Oh, maybe you should do me. I'll only muck it up if I have to do myself. I think part of the zombie resurgence of the early 2000s you know, I don't know, you spend time thinking like, oh yeah, would I be able to say, kill my family if they were turned into zombies, <laughs> right? Mm. Two characters discussing like, oh no, you should do it, I would just mess it up, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like that Liz is given a personality and she's not just the girl. She she feels like a real person. I like her line in the lead up to her dumping Sean where she's like, Oh, I just feel like if I don't get my act together... If I don't do something. If I, you know, nothing will change. And Sean's like, what do you mean do something? So, you know, just like showing the understanding gap, right? You can't explain you know, it. It's too wide to kind of make it work at that point, right? One of the criticisms of the film at the time was that tonally the bit with zombie mum mm. didn't fit in with the rest of the film it is a bit of tonal whiplash it's a bit of tonal whiplash but i think the, the film needs it because it needs that depth i think it makes it a more a, a more rounded experience and a deeper experience to have those layers and i think it would be a shallow film if it was just a zombie comedy yeah 
For if it's sure. just if it's just wall to wall comedy, wall to wall laughs. Yeah, wouldn't stick, right? Mm. And I think like the best horror comedies, like American Werewolf in London, the comedy comes from the characters, so it isn't just gags. It's not like Airplane. Yeah. Although a zombie airplane might be quite fun. <laughs> oh but... my goodness! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just go all in on it, yeah. But it probably wouldn't be very scary. It probably wouldn't be a very good horror film. Yeah, no, that's fair. Because the whole thing of uh, comedy releasing tension, making it especially tough to get the horror comedy, right? Yes, I think it works better as a juxtaposition, particularly in American Werewolf in London, where you're sitting through the comedy and that's building up the tension of when the horror is going to come back and this doesn't alternate comedy and horror in the same way that american wealth does it it's a kind of in, this it integrates it yeah more i'm not saying better because i think it actually really works in American Werewolf that it alternates. This is not an American Werewolf uh, podcast episode because <laughs> I, have, I have thoughts on that movie. But Uh-oh. I, tell me if you think this is maybe a good read. American Werewolf uh, being a horror comedy, this being a comedy horror. Yes, I think yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah, kind of just about where the balance shifts and both having elements of both, but where the emphasis is. It's one of Edgar's very favorite films as well oh. so I know he, he was very influenced by that that would make sense but it's it's definitely a, approaching horror comedy from a different angle but still yeah. getting the balance exactly right still having enough horror and enough comedy separate from each other and not infecting each other not diluting each other in any way <laughs> yeah so I had not really thought about that before I said it the idea of American Werewolf alternating horror and comedy and this this blends them yeah has them running side by side at least so they don't get mixed up but they run side by side this is never just funny and it's never rarely just horror it's occasionally the jokes or the, the humor of it stops a bit but you've always got the the quite fun characters the, the characters in this are more overtly comedic than they are in american yes. werewolf this is less of a straight drama with fun characters this is more of a a comedy yeah you know people and their foibles right yes yes you wouldn't get a character like ed in american werewolf <laughs> the, the closest you you get is griffin dunn's character who's nothing like ed at all he's just sort of like the cheeky best mate yeah yeah but really it's, they're, they're not in any way similar yeah i mean like there is a a grim stretch of the film with the zombie mom there's still some jokes there's still some we're not saying the zed word still plenty of references to films yeah but after she's shot, there's the bit with David, you know, and his uh, attempt to just straight up shoot Sean. Which again, who's the real enemy? Who's the real danger? Your fellow humans. And his subsequent being torn apart, which is kind of comedic almost in its extreme gruesomeness. And uh, then I feel like we get a little bit of the joke back to the jokes with uh, Di using his leg as a cudgel. And she <laughs> strides into a horde of zombies to rescue him, right? <laughs> Even though at this point we've seen his head detached from his uh, ripped apart body. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And according to the deleted scenes, she survives. She, but I don't yes. like that. I, I think it's part of the, the grim last stand that you have to kill off the characters. I, I mean, I don't want her necessarily... I don't necessarily want to see her die, but I do kind of like it, the idea of it being ambiguous. Yeah, I, I think it would be disappointing 
for there to be a coda in Butch and Sundance, for example, for a little thing of them hiding up a tree, going, oh, we made it. Yeah, yeah. I like that ambiguity of it's desperate and you're just assuming the characters are getting killed off one by one. And, and so I think they wisely took that idea out that she did get through the zombies and hid up a yeah, tree. Yeah, no, it's... it's only a DVD extra. You can just, and up to you to decide how canon those are, right? <laughs> I'm saying yeah. not, I'm saying non-canon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only other thing I have to say is that the end, the very end of the film gives you a glimpse of horrible early 2000s daytime TV. <laughs> you know, one of those DVD extras shows that they had a Coldplay cameo that they didn't even put in the film. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, the co- two of Coldplay do appear briefly. Final couple of questions here. Who wins your award for Outstanding Person in Front of the Camera? Uh, well, let's see. Even though at saying that maybe Jessica Stevenson could have replaced her, I do think uh, Lucy Davis's die took what could have been a thankless role. You know, it makes her um, very cute, vulnerable, maybe shades of like this person could be annoying to be around, but still sympathetic. Yes, she t- she turns a minor character into a very memorable character. I think uh, Dylan Moran, good job with David. It seems almost such a waste, though, that he's not playing a more comedic character. Such a funny guy, right? But it's good to see him's got range because you almost don't think he's... The, I mean, you don't really think he's the same guy as Bernard Black from Black Books. Right. Like, that's not the same guy. Yeah. So it shows that... Uh, for. Yeah, a stand-up comedian, he's got acting range. He can play That's different true. characters. Yeah. But I think, like, I remember re- listening to the actor's commentary and him being the funniest one, right? <laughs> yes. But sometimes you got to step back and let the uh, stars get the laughs. That's a team player, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, my nomination is, and this is bearing in mind that I think there isn't a weak performance in the whole thing. I think everyone is very strong. I'm going to say Penelope Wilton, though. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I think because she gives it she has a lot of layers and i th- and i think she's bringing the experience and the class uh, and she's she's done oh, she was she was in clockwise as well which is another one of the classic british comedies and but i, I think playing that role she could have been a very one-dimensional corny mum character but she's not she's very believable and yeah she's good at the light comedy but also she's she's good at bringing that quiet repressed english dignity to it the joke of where they're practicing being zombies and dies like barbara very good (laughs) oh sorry i was miles away (laughs) yeah and like because at that point you know her husband has been turned into a zombie right she's hiding a bite you know, the world's gone to hell. You know, like, uh, just caught in, like, a moment almost of that showing through, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that's that's what makes her particularly good, is that she has to have that whole chunk of the film with a secret. Yeah. Which I think none of the other characters really do, particularly. I mean, there's the idea that, that uh, David is really in love with Liz. But that's pretty, you know, like, called out early on. Yeah, that's fairly obvious early on. But she's, she's carrying this secret, so her... her vagueness and her sort of her comedic traits of being a bit all over the place and being a bit down yeah Mm. yeah yeah and then you find out that she's been hiding this the fact that she's been fatally bitten and then it's also it's a nice subversion because i feel like in a lot of zombie movies the person hiding a bite is usually somebody already unsympathetic to the audience yes versus here i've 
I don't think I've ever watched this film and felt mad at Barbara, right? No. For hiding the fight. Whereas in a lot of movies, you're like, hey, you you put everybody at risk. Yes, and for what? it's the sneaky, cowardly character, isn't it? To put off the inevitable, right? You should have owned up to it from the moment it happened. You know? But actually, you probably would hide it in the hope that they find some kind of cure. Oh, totally. To stay with your friends and family. Yeah, yeah. And then also, it, it's a very clever thing that in retrospect, you feel bad about laughing at certain jokes, like the joke of Barbara looking a bit vacant and Diana yeah. saying, oh, very well done. She says, oh, sorry, I was miles away. And you know she's she's just been bitten a few minutes earlier and yeah. so she's, she's got a lot on her plate. She's got a lot on her mind. So then you look back on these things and you feel bad. Oh, oh I laughed at that. But actually, mm. that's that's the precursor to this, this tragic finale. This isn't a performance, but I want to shout out Bill Nye. When I worked at a gallery in London, He'd come in, always a nice guy. Uh, oh, that's good to the, know. The staff, we wouldn't, you know, approach him because we were professional. But I yes. know, like, I saw, like, patrons be like, can my girlfriend take a picture with you? And he'd say, of course, right? Well, that's <laughs> good. He's a proper gent. So this one's obviously a bit trickier because you don't see them. But who wins your award for outstanding person behind the camera? Yeah. Now, I haven't looked into exactly who did this. But I do think the special effects really good. I don't think this film looks low budget. I don't know what its budget was, but a first time filmmaker, a British film, I can't imagine it being uh, substantial. No, I think it would just be a few a handful of million. Yeah, I think overall the yeah special effects fantastic. I was talking about this practical effect of the dart. The only thing that maybe looks a little dodgy is like uh, the quick cuts of the military showing up at the end. But I can imagine you might have to do some creative staging to get across the scale of that, you know? Yes. So my my award, and this is taking Edgar Wright for red, I think. Uh, I'm saying Chris Dickens, the editor. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I think probably, obviously, it's Edgar Wright, but you can't just, I can't just say the no, director for every yeah. occasion, so I'm saying the I'm editor. Also, I also think we should, as a society, try to get rid of the of auteur theory. I think, straight up, a lot of evil has come from <laughs> the idea of one creative vision creating a film. We, we, yes, we, we, as we're discovering, more and more stories come out, not not about Edgar Wright, luckily, and he does seem like a proper team player. Uh, he's 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 the glue holding it all together, and he has a lot of the, the stylistic ideas. And I, having seen every film he's made, yeah, it does have a vision and distinctive style, but there's, of course, always people behind the scenes who have contributed to that. And obviously, you, you edit closely with the director, so this isn't the, the editor imposing his style on top of the film, but I think... Well, I know, like, but, like, when Tarantino, when his long-term editor, and I forget her name, Sally... But Sally... Sally Menke, or Menke. But him saying that she was kind of the only one, as far as uh, the production side of things goes, that he considered, like, a collaborator. He'd be writing it, he'd be directing it, but it was only once it got to the editing room that somebody else was kind of uh, uh, putting their own touch on it, right? And yeah, and I don't know how widely appreciated outside of film that is known. I could ask you some silly questions that you could cut out. All right, then, go on. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, do you think you'd do well in a zombie apocalypse? Um, I think I would. I think I'd be okay. great. <laughs> oh, I like this confidence. That's good. That's good. I I'd be bad at violence. Yes. I'm quite squeamish. 
Mm. But I think I'd be quite good at not getting caught. I'm, I can be quite wily. Oh, okay. All right. I like it. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I grew up in the countryside. I grew up in Lincolnshire, spending <laughs> spending a lot of my childhood staying out of the way of farmers whilst trespassing. <laughs> Nice. Playing on the farmyards. Turning those those figures into zombies. You're golden. <laughs> <laughs> how about you though? How do you how do you uh, think you're doing that? See, I think apocalypse? I'd be good until the people I care about started uh dying, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it'd be a big that bummer. Would be a bummer. <laughs> maybe lose the will to live in this zombie world. So yeah, yeah, tricky, yeah. I really enjoyed uh, discussing my favourite movie, Shaun of the Dead. It's your absolute favourite movie, do you think? Um, It's definitely up there. As I said, I've changed, and so... My, you know, I've seen a lot more movies since I've seen this one, you know, and because I've changed, it's still up there. I still probably watch it every couple years, just not several times a year, like when I was younger. And after thinking it over, I do think Return of the Living Dead is my favourite zombie movie. (laughs) Right. I think for me, if I come home from the pub... And I've had a few, and I fancy watching a film that I've seen lots of times before, and it's a nice, easy watch. It's either going to be this or A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, good comfort movie, that, that's right? Nor- that's normally the circumstances where I watch either of those two films. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And if it's on telly, well, if either of them are on telly, I'll usually stay. Yeah, sure, that's just that's just fate. So, before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, well, I am a author, and I had a fantasy, a historical fantasy novel that came out last year. It's called Innate Magic. You could ask your local bookstore to order it in, or you can find it online. Actually, the sequel, External Forces, is coming out this winter, so now is a good time to read the first book. Give us a bit of a a quick premise. Yeah, sure. So it's set in uh, 1950s England, but in a world where magic exists, and the main character, Paul Gallagher, he's a Liverpool lad trying to make uh, a go of it in London. He makes magic clothes for a living, but he also has this secret illegal magic that he can do. And when somebody, this man in the military, finds out about it, a man that Paul kind of like forms a little bit of a crush on because he's the type to fall easily when he meets someone he's attracted to. And when this military man kind of wants to use Paul's power for his own ends, uh, he's in a bit of a pickle, right? It puts his friends and family in danger, and he has to get out of that spot. That sounds very intriguing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And if people are interested, where can they get in touch? I'm on Twitter. Shannon L. Fay is my handle there. I've got a website, ayearonsaturn.com, but I'm pretty bad at about updating it. So you can still check it out, yeah. And Faye is just F-Y-I. F-A-Y-F-Y-I. Faye is just F-A-Y, no E Correct. Yeah, the Faye's with the E's got nothing to do with them. Splitters. (laughs) 
Well, thank you, Shannon. And thank you, listeners, for pressing your ear to the podcast wall and eavesdropping on our conversation. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find my sibling podcast, RetroTube Archive Television Podcast, on Twitter at Retro underscore Tube, where my co-host Heather also lives. And if you want to send actual email communication, the address is RetroTubePodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back soon with another guest and another film. But until then, goodbye. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almonby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almonby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.